Thanks for joining us in our study of the book of Joshua. This Old Testament book presents a theological history of God as the sovereign promise maker and promise keeper who brings to pass all his gracious purposes. It calls Christians to live in light of the gospel blessings secured for them by Jesus, the better Joshua. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in him. Well, very happy Mother's Day to all those who have, are here and have been given the gift and stewardship of motherhood. Um, I've never been a mother, but um, it seems to be one of the most difficult and wonderful jobs in the world uh, from my observation. Um, God has not given that responsibility to everyone. We realize that, and that is uh, his to do and has given different responsibilities for different people. Um, and the Lord grants those different gifts. Uh, I just want to encourage you that do not despise the gift that you have been given. Uh, each has been given something different from our Savior to steward well. And these are good gifts. And so we take them seriously. Uh, it was his design and his will to do so. So it is one holiday that I'm fine with Hallmark making a buck off of. It's okay. Uh, to do it well, being a mother is a grueling experience. Um, physically exhausting, mentally wearing, uh, spiritually burdensome, but it is a wonderful opportunity to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and to love your neighbor. Depending on how tall they are, they could be the ones that are living in your house. Uh, it's a great opportunity. I can say that I would not be the person I am um, unless I grew up in the, in the house I did with my mother who regularly preached the gospel to me and taught me the way to Jesus Christ. Um, so I thank God for putting me in that home and his grace to me to have my own mother. So, Mom, I love you. Uh, so to all the mothers here this morning, uh, you have a great responsibility, a weighty task, a God-given one, but a good stewardship. So we praise the Lord and we thank him for what he's done in you and what he'll continue to. Uh, happy Mother's Day and thank you very much. Let's turn to Joshua chapter 8. And we are going to finish up this morning, Joshua chapter 8, starting in verse 30. We were in 1 through 29 last week. Um, well, actually before Matt, excuse me, the week before that. Matt led us last week through um, a section there, and we really appreciate his bringing us the word. But as we look at Joshua 8, I want us to consider something. There are certain words and phrases that we think are important enough to remember and repeat and memorize even. Um, a lot of these things we rehearse and go back, like for instance, if, if any of you remember the Gettysburg Address, you probably remember some of these words, four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty, dedicated to the proposition of all men are created equal. And then later on, the, the, probably one of the most famous parts of it, at the end he's talking about what this government should be is then of the people, by the people, and for the people. Those words ring in our ears. Let's go even back a little bit further than Lincoln, all the way back to the Declaration of Independence. Now, let's try a game here. I'm going to like break, and you're going to fill in the word. All right, here we go. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created, that they are endowed by their created with certain unalienable, that among these are... Now, how do we know those phrases so well? How, how do you know that? Yeah, I know. Some of you, just because you said, because I went to school... Um, but how do we know these so well? They come right off our lips. And I'll bet you, if we had the time and I gave you a piece of paper and we worked together and I didn't give you the answers, we could probably come up with those, both of those phrases almost in entirety. 
Because why? How does that happen? I'll bet if we worked on it, we could get it almost perfectly without any of the answers, without looking at Google. I guess that for most of us, excluding maybe some really uh, excited history buffs, we don't have these words plastered on our walls. They're not necessarily something that we frame. Maybe some do, but most of us don't. That doesn't sit in a prominent place in our home. It's definitely not... <laughs> It's definitely not something that we have to read like those terms and conditions, you know, when we sign up, whether it's for a new credit card or a new service online or the new phone that we get. You know what I'm talking about when you say, yes, you guiltily, you click I agree when you know you full well that you have not read it at all. Or those of us have like a little bit more sensitive conscience, at least open it up and like scroll through it so we can say, yeah, I put eyes on it. I know what I'm getting into. I, I agree. No, these terms and conditions, we realize that... Uh, they are a little bit more than just um, only duty, but they're not really almost for us at all. It's almost like they're legal jargon that we'll put our eyes on to make sure that the provider doesn't get sued. <laughs> That's the real purpose. We know that. Um, but we get it. That's not how, though, we think of these early American creeds that we just talked about. We don't think of them that way. They're far more important to us. They're different. We, we almost know them by heart. Like it's something that's already emblazoned in our hearts and minds. We don't even say if we're sentimental, they come from our hearts. These are things that we hold to be true and important. The nation then that has this ability is going to be able to do something special. Why is it that these things are known by us so well? Well, it's because someone along the way thought that it was important enough to put in specific words. And I'll go one step further. It was not just someone. It was actually a group of someones, a group of people that said, this is important enough to make sure we put it down in words and important enough to convey to many different people. The truths of equality and rights and liberty and even the worth of mankind are the founding principles on which our American forefathers wrote the Constitution. They took that from what they founded and said these things are important to us. They knew it would be necessary to put these concepts into words, words that could be understood, words that could be remembered, words that could be even memorized and repeated by later generations of Americans so that we could have a common understanding of what mattered when building a nation. We'd understand, as it were, our national doctrine. They needed this philosophy to have a proper approach to what it meant to build this nation. And for years now, we've repeated these phrases. And if, again, probably some of you know these only because you've memorized them in school. And some of our children still memorize some of these phrases. They're regularly brought up at very important times, whether in Congress or whether in some important occasion where we say some of these things and rely on them heavily because they're very important teachings for us. A nation that rightly understands and submits to and holds dear a common body of national doctrine will remember their identity. They'll understand. And that will help them go forward and make decisions. Today, in our text, we are going to learn about God. We're going to learn about our identity in Him. But the world around us and so easily says it's up to you to consider what it's like and who this God is and for you to experience Him in your own way. And once you do that, you will know God. And that's how you come to Him through nature and through experience and through this collected body of knowledge of all those around us. Joshua 8 is going to teach us something very, very different. It's going to show us where truth lies and how important it is for us to understand it if we are going to understand God correctly. Today, in our text, we break away from the battlefield 
and we'll enter a solemn worship service where we find that the ultimate aim is for Israel to hear and cherish the word of God through Moses. Joshua pulls out of the nitty-gritty task of obediently conquering the Canaanite land and takes us to an ancient city that has long been waiting for the arrival of God's people, eager to see God fulfill his promises of land, blessing, and rest. The people of Israel are in a place called Shechem. Now, you're not going to see that in Joshua 8, but we know from both history and from the Bible and other places that this space between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim is Shechem. In this place, we find many years ago that it was Abram who built an altar here because God came and spoke to him and said these words from Genesis 12, 6 and 7, to your offspring, I will give this land. That's at Shechem. That's where these guys are going. Later on, someone else will construct another altar here in the exact same place. In fact, this someone buys the land and then they put the altar on it. It's Jacob. He returns, if you remember this, from the house of Laban. He wrestles with the Lord. Do you remember that? He gains the name Israel. He's no longer called Jacob, but now Israel. And then he comes to this place, Shechem. He buys land and he, he constructs an altar here and puts it up to, to Yahweh and his worship. So this location, where we're at, is no accident. It's not incidental. They just happen to be here. Now, at first reading, it seems like the worship service is almost like a side note. We're going through battle after battle after battle, and now we're coming upon this. And it almost seems random. It, it certainly wasn't commanded by the Lord. If you look at 8.30 through 35, you're not going to see, and the Lord said. It doesn't say that here. Although that's been the pattern so far in all of Joshua, we see him leading them over and over again. I mean, up to this point, we've seen the Lord do this. The Lord told them to cross the Jordan. The Lord told them to circumcise the uncircumcised who were in their camp. The Lord told Joshua that he was the divine warrior, and he revealed himself to have the drawn sword. The Lord told them to take Jericho. The Lord told them how to take care of the Canaanite in their midst, Achan. After that episode, he told them to defeat the city of Ai. And then we get here, and we don't have the Lord telling them to do anything. We don't see the Lord telling them to do this or that. It almost seems like this is an initiative of Joshua's. Like we're going to go to this place and have this altar and do this ceremony. But I'll admit, if we were a little bit better with our Pentateuch, we would recognize that this is not a Joshua initiative. This is something that's ancient, that's been planned for a while. It's something actually not that Joshua dreamed of, but rather that was commanded from the words of Moses. Um, actually, there's something here that we should be expecting. Really, we should expect this to happen right after chapter 4, right after we've entered into the land. In Deuteronomy 27, and feel free to go and put your finger there because we're going to reference it a couple times here. In Deuteronomy 27, we find Moses commanding the people that when they cross over the Jordan, when they go into this land, they are to set up an altar, perform sacrifices, copy the law, and read it to all of the people. Guess what's going to happen here at the end of Joshua 8? All these things. And yes, Moses said where this ought to happen, on Mount Ebal, between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. In other words, Shechem, exactly where they are at. It's at this place that we will experience then Israel's obedience to God from commands that were happened long ago. Sometimes we watch people obey in response to the Lord speaking directly. We see that all the time through Scripture. And in our study, he speaks directly to Joshua several times. Amazing. I mean, 
we kind of think if we would only experience that, if we could hear the Lord speak, it would be amazing and then obey right away. But in other places, even here, we watch the people obey old commands that were given through Moses. The Lord did not come to speak to Joshua directly here. In fact, he spoke to the nation through Moses years past. This type of obedience seems very normal, non-miraculous, and seemingly almost just every day. Here in Joshua 8, 30-35, the people of Israel fulfill the words of Moses. They obey. They obey. They, they want to do what is right according to the Bible. They take those words seriously. And through this obedience, they have put a very high priority on God's word and what he has said to them. Let's go ahead and read Joshua 8, 30-35. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there, in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of, that, of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourner who lived among them. The people of Israel have just finished another conquering or a destroying of the city of Ai. They have listened to the voice of the Lord and they have seated in another military conquest, but they're far from done. What now? I mean, the, the logical question is to say, where do we go after I? Let, there's a lot to conquer left, so we really better get working on this. We better get to it. But instead of jumping to the next thing, the next military endeavor, focused on strategy and position and people building and resources, getting ready, we find Joshua building an altar. That's exactly where he turns next. It's a jarring literary move. You're not expecting this. We shouldn't be. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. All of a sudden, we've gone from here to here to here, and all of a sudden, we're in Shechem, seeing him building an altar. Uh, we just came off of the steady stream of these military encounters, and now we find ourselves in the midst of what seems to be some sort of worship service. The head of Israel's army, Joshua, or at least in human form, now takes them to the altar to worship. And the one who is the head of the army now brings them before the Lord and brings them back to the most important priority, Israel's worship to their Yahweh, to their covenant-keeping God. We find Joshua following Moses' words perfectly. You'll see littered throughout this whole text is according to the words of Moses, according to the law, according to what he had said to do. He goes in an appointed place and he wrecks an altar of uncut stones, the first of its kind in that land. If you consider this, this land was overrun with idolatry and all different types of altars had been set up all of them ornate and impressive and meant to be glittery and, shiner and shiny and attract a lot of attention. But here we see it's one that has not been touched or had done by some sort of hammer or chisel or anything made of iron. 
These are basically field stones that they picked up to make this altar. They're not ornate. They're not graven. They're not going to impress anyone. This altar was made from untouched field stones that came out of the dirt. It came from the ground. It was not to draw attention, but was in accordance with the plans for true worship to the living God. And on this altar, what do they do? They offer two sacrifices. You'll notice that. They say the burnt offering and the peace offering, or otherwise known as the fellowship offering. This doesn't mean much to us at first glance. We're like, okay, yeah, it's an altar. Of course you would do those things. But I think it's, a, it's, it's more important that we might think. In the burnt offering, if you remember back in Leviticus, we have a sacrifice in which an entire animal is offered and burnt completely, consumed by the fire. In Leviticus 1.4, we learn that in this offering, the animal was offered for one reason, to atone for the sin of the one offering it. Remember, Jesus hasn't died yet. We talk about sacrifice and we go right to Jesus, as we should. But they don't have that. Remember, what they're actually experiencing is the shadow or the type of the one to come who will end all sacrifices. They have no way of paying the price for their sins against a holy God. And so the burnt offering was a way in faith, don't miss that, in faith for the people of Israel to have atonement for their sins. Now, did those bulls or goats or sheep actually satisfy the wrath of God? No. They were not in that sense effectual. That blood could never buy us. Only the blood of Jesus Christ could do that. So what we're seeing here is a different lesson than that. I, I, we're not going to get too far into that, although that would be easy to preach. By faith instead, they see this type as Yahweh has told them to trust him and to sacrifice this, and there must be one to take that. And so they do this in obedience. They, by faith, they take a sacrificing a male without blemish according to the Lord's direction, and it is counted as righteousness as they believe God and trust him for their salvation. In this system, there is a constant need for sin to be recognized, repented of, and atoned for. So what was this? This is God's grace to cover sin. This is dealing with the problem of sin against a holy God. So as they stand here at Ebal, they perform burnt offerings to enjoy atonement and forgiveness of their sin. But that's not the only thing. We also see them sacrifice peace offerings or these fellowship offerings I talked about. And they're called fellowship offerings for good reason. This is a joyful offering that was meant to give to God, but parts of it were kept for a feast to be enjoyed by the people as well. And so what we see in this peace offering or this uh, fellowship offering is a different focus. We're actually watching as they enjoy fellowship with God and with one another. It's a beautiful thing. By faith, these people do this and encourage each other to fellowship. They would enjoy it together before and with God, and thus it indicated the reestablishing of a true relationship with God and fellowship with his people. By the way, the Christian was never saved to live as one of his own, like his own redeemed identity all by himself. The Christian has been saved to a people, to God's people, to fellowship with this people. We were saved and now belong to his church. Because of his cross work, his sacrifice, not only do we have the forgiveness of sin, but consider this, we have true friendship and fellowship with God and with his people. That is true reconciliation that only could come because of the sacrifice of Jesus. 
Now Moses instructed both of these sacrifices here on Mount Ebal. We see the people in the promised land obediently seeking God's atoning work and fellowship truly with him and his people. All by faith. But this is the only beginning of the scene. We have this now. What happens next? Next we find Joshua writing a copy of the law of Moses on tablets of stone. But not on some mountain alone like Moses did. Rather, we find him in a very different place in front of the whole nation. Picture the entire nation gathered together quietly waiting as Joshua plasters these great stones with sacred writing. I mean, it's an incredible scene as they watch. And here sits this man in the middle, obeying God. And as the nation sits by and watches, they realize this is a monumental time. Words that they have heard before. It's not something new to them. This isn't new revelation. In fact, it's a retelling of the truth. It's a copying of God's word. Words that are worth repeating. Words that their children probably already know how to recite from memory. Joshua writes a copy of the law of Moses. And notice who is here, right? Verse 33 says, In all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord. In other words, everyone who is in the company of Israel is here. Native-born, the ones that have pure Jewish blood, and Gentile as well that are trusting him. All of the leadership, we have the elders, the officers, the judges, all of them stand around the Ark of the Covenant as Joshua writes out a copy of the Law of Moses. Notice then that they perform this ceremony exactly how Moses told them to. They don't invent a new thing and bring something into the picture. If you put your finger and you have it, look at, at, at Deuteronomy 27. I want you to look back for a moment. Look at verses 11 through 13. Moses charges the people in 27, 11 through 13. He says to them, When you have crossed over the Jordan, these shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. And these shall stand on Mount Ebal for the curse, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. Now stay here for a moment, and I want you to think about this. What's going on here? Why is this happening? Why is he surrounded the Ark of the Covenant and this writing of the word with all the people? Why isn't it like at the White House when the president stands here and fields and fields back go away from him? Why is it surrounding on both sides? Why is it so important that God has placed himself in the midst of the people? There's, of course, the practical reason, right? More and more people, if they're surrounding it, can see what's going on. Between these two mountains, we have almost what's called a, a natural amphitheater for them to see what's going on. So it's very practical for them to see. But I think there's a grander design here. Even here in how the people are set up during this ceremony, we have God's presence. Remember the Ark of the Covenant? We have his presence at the center of his people. And it's no accident that the center of his people has the word of God, the law, that which declares God himself, that which explains him. They are here to experience the precious action of copying God's law showing its importance, showing its permanence, showing its placement within Israel at the center of his people. This is visible in like a tactile way for them actually to obey the commands we saw back in Joshua 1. What did he say in Joshua 1? They're, they're not turning from the left or to the right. It's almost as if they can't look away from it. It is in the center of them. They can't. 
It is a way for them to even obey in a ceremonial way that he is the one to stay, keep in front of them and to not turn by to the right or to the left. His revelation is precious and it must be central for his people. But still we're not even done. Just on this, on this copying out. Something else will happen. Look at verse 34 and 35. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. And there was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. Now flip back to Deuteronomy 27. Starting in verse 15, I want you to take a look at this. See it for yourself. I believe that what Joshua is saying to the people is, is mainly found here. There may be more than this, but I certainly think that we're getting this. Look at verse 15. It may be more than again, but at least this. Let me give you a few of these curses and blessings and how it probably sounded. Joshua had the Levites say, Cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image, an abomination to the Lord, a thing made by the hands of a craftsman and sets up in secret. And then what would happen is the whole congregation would answer together in unison, amen, or truly, or basically they're saying, we agree. Then we go to the next one. The Levites say, cursed be anyone who dishonors his father or his mother. Then the whole congregation answers back, amen, or we agree. The Levites say, cursed be anyone who moves his neighbor's landmark. And again, together they all say, amen. And this goes on and on and on. Now, if you're here for the Easter service, we did a song called, Is He Worthy? And we, we kind of did this exact thing where we sang something, the musicians sang something, and as a congregation, we responded. It was something along the lines of, you know, do you feel the world is broken? And the congregation responds, we do. This is what's happening in their presence. So they're all experiencing and obeying together and recognizing these words from God. It's very similar. But after these 12 intense curses, the speaker turns and proclaims the blessings. This is beautiful. He says this, and I'll, and I'll just pick up and you can listen. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all of his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Here we go, ready? Blessed shall you be in the city. Blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall be you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. On and on and on he goes, giving these abundant blessings, showing the riches that are found in God himself. And we find that all these things are given to Israel if indeed they will be his people. All of these things are theirs if they will be true to the covenant relationship that they have with him, that he is the one that gave to them. What does it look like then? We should ask this question. What does it look like to be one of God's people? Is it about race or ethnicity? We learned that from Joshua, no. Is it about ideology or perhaps philosophy of nation building and how to approach doing those things to make sure that we have value, equality, and liberty and personhood? No. Our identity, Israel's identity, is based on the gracious work of Yahweh to save them from certain judgment. Remember this. It was Yahweh who gave them his covenantal love. They did not come to him, 
but rather he came to them. They didn't deserve it one single bit. He poured it out on them. They were undeserving, wimpy, wretches. They never did anything to deserve something like this. It was not because they were so great or so mighty or because their obedience was really on point. It was none of those things. If you remember this, consider for a moment the Ten Commandments. This is Exodus 20. I love that he gives them this at Sinai after the Exodus, after he has rescued them, after he has shown his power through the Red Sea, after he has called Moses to rescue these people. It's after all of that he says this, before he ever delivers the Ten Commandments. I love this. It's God who says this of himself. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then he begins. You shall have no other gods before me. Did you notice he doesn't say, here are the Ten Commandments that you must do, and then you'll be worthy of my relationship. He has already brought them into covenant relationship. He has rescued this people. There's no misunderstanding here. God comes to his people after he has revealed himself, after he has rescued them from the house of slavery, and then he tells them what it looks like for his people to love him with their whole heart, soul, and mind, and what it looks like for them to truly thrive as a nation. I know I'm totally distracted right now. Um, Moses gives us then this wonderful list and helps us to understand these 10 rules, these 10 words, these 10 commandments in light of the exodus, in light of the redemption that they have because of God's great work in his people. These blessings will only continue though and it will only happen if the people will listen to the word of the Lord and obey it. These blessings will only continue if the people obey the commandments of the Lord their God. It took, he is saying, complete covenant obedience. That it should not be something to them that's weird that they must also then obey what God has told them to do. They will have all of these blessings if they do not turn. This is from Deuteronomy 27, 13, and 14. If they do not turn aside from any of the words that I commanded them, today, to the right hand and to the left, to go after other gods to serve them. I, I don't want us to miss this. We can't miss this. There are covenant obligations. Get that. There are covenant obligations that the people of Israel must fulfill. Those that take this relationship seriously will understand this. The Lord's great mercy has brought us into a relationship with the most holy God. He has graciously bent down and given life to these people. And this relationship, get this, comes with the benefits of the law. Now that's crazy. You mean the benefits are rules, commandments, stipulations, requirements, doing the things that God says? I mean, <laughs> rules are not benefits. Rules are prohibitive. And uh, they hold us back and restrictive from what I want to do from what really keeps me free to let me do what I want to do. But I may remind us, we forget our natural tendencies. May remind us of our natural tendencies towards self-destruction, sinfulness, and everything that is anti-God. The Bible shows and tells us over and over again, we do not seek after God. We run headlong into hell against God. The ways then of the Lord are right and true and pure and life. Later on in Deuteronomy 30, Moses will proclaim that if you choose this, you will choose life and blessing 
And if you do not, you will choose death and curses. Lawlessness ends in misery. So even in this act, we see God graciously providing for his people. I mean, don't we see the law isn't a way for us to earn our salvation or sanctification by doing a bunch of hard stuff that we don't really want to do. It is a way for us to know and trust and experience life in its fullness. I could not have said that as a teenage boy. I was like, how in the world do you think that's true? All these rules that we have to do and make sure we do the right things and avoid evil and like this stuff does not sound fun compared to things that I want to do in and of my flesh. How's it possible that you're telling me following all these rules somehow brings true happiness or joy or life? See, this is the thing. The crazy thing about this is that God is giving them all these commands and we think it's some sort of formula. That if we just say, okay, fine, I'll submit to this formula, then it'll be good. Because what goes in, I pay with good works. I mean, I want to believe and do it rightly, but I pay for good works. God comes in and he looks to see if they were spirit wrought and if they were appropriate and they were good. And on the other side comes out blessing, comes out good things. As though they're almost completely different things. That's what our hearts kind of think about this whole process. Mind us. What about this though? Do we ever consider that it's not quite like that? Like it's possibly something different. Do we ever think that instead obeying God in every area of life is actually the real way to enjoy the world that he has made and resides over? Like it works that way? Knowing and loving and trusting God is the way to know this world correctly and that fullness of joy actually is that way because it was meant to be that way? That true flourishing comes when we are in fellowship with this God and we follow all of his instructions on how to live, that it works out rightly because he designed it that way? It's amazing to me that David can say, I love your law. I love the rules. Oh, it's awesome. That's so strange to a heart that doesn't love God and trust him completely. You can only truly say that if you are a believer and that if you trust God wholly and say, if you say this is true, it must be true. This is what Joshua is calling Israel to do. That's what Moses was calling him to do. And the truth is, that's what the Bible is calling us to do. This morning, we see the centrality of the word for a covenant people. We see the commands of the Lord, the law copied and proclaimed to all of Israel. We hear very clearly that if you will choose to listen and obey the word of the Lord, you will be blessed. We know from other scriptures, that doesn't mean that we're going to have a bunch of money or have a bunch of health. This life may prove very differently from us. James taught us that very well. But if we trust what we sang this morning, that Christ is mine forevermore, we have every single thing that we need. But this can only be understood by the eyes of faith. To trust him truly, and then we have reason to follow. And we start to see then that these things are right because this God is right. Because he can make a way for all of us. Because he created this way and then gave his son so that we might be reconciled to him. That only comes through the eyes of faith. So my question is real simple. Do you believe this? We aren't setting up an altar of uncut stones this morning uh, or sacrificing burnt or fellowship offerings. 
Praise God, we know that's not necessary because Christ has come and has given himself as our ultimate sacrifice. We know then in this, even in the Lord's Supper, when we eat together and remember and fellowship, when we are in communion with God, we are enjoying Christ's offering for us. But as we quiet ourselves this morning and open the word together and show it to be for what it is, we call one another to hear and to obey so that we might fulfill our, co- our covenant obligations with joy, faith, and obedience to our Christ King. We call one another to obedience to the Holy Word of God. It is worth copying. It is worth reading. It is worth remembering and memorizing. It ought to be, as the people of God, central to us. It's not our deity. We don't worship a holy book. Um, in one sense, if, if these copies of God's word burnt up, I'd be sad, but that's okay. We don't worship the book. We worship the living God who has given us communication in this book. And that's why it's so incredible that he would speak to us through his word. And because we do, I would call us to the same thing that Joshua called Israel to. I'll ask you, do the words of God, his commands, have a central place in your life? And I don't mean the once a week that you come and listen and that you open your Bible for that time. Do you open his word more than that one time a week as we sit here together in the auditorium? More than that, do you take it seriously if you do? Or as you listen, perhaps, I mean, man, there's, there's so many good apps and other opportunities to hear and to take in God's word seriously. Now I'm exhorting you. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, as your friend and your brother and your pastor, I call you to take God's word seriously. It is his revelation of himself, and through it we know what he calls us to do. And it also explains who he is. If we desire to live a life of gratitude and understand actually all that has been given to us, we must over and over again, as imperfectly as we try, put ourselves under the word of God over and over again. Read it. Ask questions of it. And I know, I, I get it, I promise. I know you're saying, Chris, I've done it. It is really hard for me to understand. I have no idea what 1 Corinthians is all about. Like, I don't know what he's talking about. I'm, tr- I'm trying, Chris, I'm trying, but it's really difficult. That's okay. That's okay. There's a whole group of people here that had the same struggle. I am not anything special. It's over and over again that we look to the word and try to understand how these verbs and sentences work together. I'll I'll just encourage you with this. Ask another believer, what do you think about this passage? What a great opportunity for true Christian fellowship. As we think of another person, what are you reading? Not so that you can say, okay, good, you're a good Christian, we check that box. But rather to say, what have you then learned and how do we obey and love and know and enjoy Jesus Christ through his word? Do you understand that Bible reading is not like something to do off to the side, but rather that which shows us who God is? and gives us then an opportunity to see him and obey and enjoy him forever properly. It is his gift to us. And it's not something that is kind of like, well, you should ought to want to read this. Yes, I understand that. We, we do want you to read it. We want to read it. And we want that desire to be true. There's something, though, to the fact that a lot of us have to set timers and disciplines in our life to say, this is important enough to me to do it. So I call us. Put it on your calendar if you have to. If this is important to us, this will take a central role in our lives. 
So what we see here today, in the midst of, so all the way back to Joshua now, right? In the midst of Canaan, as they are con- or they're conquering city after city, we see Joshua leads the people to the most important priority for them, a right relationship with Yahweh through the centrality of God's word, a right understanding of what it means to be an obedient and faithful people. For truly, this is the way that brings life and blessing. Let's pray together. Father, we are lost sometimes in this great dilemma, knowing that in your presence, silence is what best becomes us. But Lord, we know and we see your word, our hearts are enlarged because we, we realize who you are and it constrains us to speak of who you are. Or we want to, to speak truth, but we know that we cannot just by ourselves. And as the world thinks up this is what God is like, may we put that away. And may we go back to your word to le- learn of who you truly are. Lord, I ask that you would teach us that your spirit would continually work in us as we stumble and work and put this as a central place in our lives. I pray for faith for us. Would you let faith support us where reason fails? And then we shall think because we believe, not in order that we may believe. Lord, please work in us. We need your hand. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons on Joshua and for more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.